Please be seated. First, I'd like to say thanks to Seth and to Asa. You did very well. Don't tempt anymore, Asa. <laughs> and it's good to be with you all. Again, it's always good to be with you all. These, these are some interesting verses, aren't they? Right in the Sermon of the Mount. Question. In three words, could you say the mission statement of Meadows? thing I like about the mission statement is you can. To know, to love, and to become. Now there's more to it. It's to glorify God by helping people to Like Jesus Christ. In these verses, did you see Jesus' mission statement? Jesus' mission statement. I would never have come to the Sermon on the Mount to expect Jesus' mission statement. But here it is. It's right in front of us. Do not think I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill them. He puts it sort of in a negative sense, but here's his mission. His mission is to come and fulfill. It's not his only mission. He's going to die on a cross, forgiveness of sins, but it's all there. Jesus' mission statement, he says it twice. I've come, I've come. Now, my question is, when we begin to look at this portion from the Sermon on the Mount, is why does Jesus even need to stay? I have not come to destroy them. I mean, what has he done so far? He's had his baptism. He's been tempted by Satan. We've read about his genealogy. He's called disciples. He hasn't done anything that would lead anybody to say, well, you're going to destroy the law because it looks like he's trying to clarify something. I haven't come to destroy the law. But he's forward speaking here because he's going to do some things that make it look like he's destroying the law. He is paying no attention to the law. And so let's look at a few of those things from the Gospel of Matthew. And if you went to some of the other Gospels, you'd see some other things. So first, he will work on the Sabbath. Well, he'll be, he won't work on the Sabbath, but he'll be accused of working on the Sabbath. You remember the, the scene? The disciples and Jesus are walking through the wheat fields and they pick some grain off because they're hungry and he's accused of working on the Sabbath. And it looks like he has no regard for the law and he's charged with no regard for the law. It's not true. That's a different sermon. It's a great, great passage to examine. It's not true. He's not, he's not destroying the law when he does that. And there's another one. Uh, well, I kind of go back. I double clicked. He heals on the Sabbath. That's the picture you see: man with a withered hand. And the and the uh, scribes and Pharisees say, "Is it is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" Jesus says, "Is it is it good to heal? To do good or to do bad?" He's, he's not working on the Sabbath, but he does heal the man. Then there's another, another time. And these are just a few of the examples that I have. 
Jesus is going to say in Matthew 5, 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 30, 40, uh, 41, 43, uh, he's going to say, you have heard it said of old, referring to the law. You have heard it said, and then Jesus says, but I say to you. So it sounds like Jesus is going to destroy the law. You've heard it said, but I'm going to say, say to you. It sounds like Jesus is saying, okay, you know what? Forget about the law. Just listen to me. It's not what he's doing, but it's going to sound that way. So Jesus is preparing us, say, look, I have not come to destroy the law. And then there's this, really, this is one of my favorite passages where it looks like he's destroying the law. This is really interesting. He touches uh, unclean lepers, but he, doesn't think he becomes, but he doesn't think he becomes unclean like the law requires. Everybody, since Moses gave the law, since God gave the law to Moses, every single time, every single person throughout all history up to this point, you touch a leper, you're unclean. It's the law. Why doesn't Jesus think he is subject to the law? Why doesn't he think he's unclean? He's not. Which means that either he's above the law or he's destroyed the law or maybe he's the lawgiver. He makes the leper clean. Now what's really interesting is Jesus is going to really confirm what he just, what he just said. He says this, for amen, your Bible might say truly, the word's amen. In Hebrew, you know what the word is? Amen. In Greek, you know what the word is? Amen. In English, you know what the word is? Amen. amen. It's amen. For amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, thinking just like the, the smallest letter and, and a dot, like an I, will not pass from the law until all is accomplished. But we want to focus on that word amen because by Jesus saying, look, I have not come to destroy the law. And then he says amen. Amen means truly. Different translations say we'll say verily or truly I assure you. But amen is an extremely strong affirmation of what was just said. So when we pray, we say amen. What you're saying is, God, I really mean what I'm praying. I'm not being glib. I'm not just throwing stuff out. I am making a prayer, and I really, really mean it. Amen. It's a strong affirmation. You're saying what I am saying is trustworthy. What you're saying is, let it be so. So it's a, it's a statement of absolute trust and confidence. So Jesus is saying, I have not come to destroy the law, and I'm really serious about this. You can be certain of this. What I'm saying is reliable to you. Jesus stood by what he said, and he's binding them. He's binding what he said to his, with his hearers. It is true. Amen. 
Now, this is where the word amen gets really interesting. Okay, are you still with me? This is where it gets really interesting. Um, amen is said for good things, right? So in my D group, Julius Paulus, I uh, always ask my D group seven arrows. And one arrow points up, what does, uh, what does God think about this? One arrow points uh, down, what do we think about this? One arrow points out, what does the culture think? How would the culture have understood this word, amen? And amen in that culture would have been understood in two ways. The first way you've heard is a positive thing, right? Amen. I'm serious about this, right? Amen, God. I've made a prayer. Amen. It's true. This is the way it happens. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing. So if I say to you, Meadow's mission is to glorify God by helping people to know, love, and become like Jesus Christ, I might hear a... Amen. Yeah. Because it's true, right? It's who you want to be. And you mean that. But there's a second way amen is used. And it's fascinating. So let's look at the law. Because after all, that's what Jesus is talking about, right? Talking about the law. So we go to the law, Deuteronomy. Amen is used for curses, too. So look at what it says. There, there are actually, in Deuteronomy 27, there are 12 different curses. So this one is, the one who dishonors his father or mother is cursed. And this is all from Deuteronomy. And all the people will say, and that's because you realize that you need to honor your father and mother. If you dishonor them, you have dishonored the commandment, right? And so when Moses says, look, anyone who dishonors his father and mother be cursed, people say, absolutely. We agree with you wholeheartedly, Moses. It is wrong. Okay, so let's look at I only have three. Nah, I'm not going to go through all 12. But here's the second one. The one who leads a blind person astray on the road is cursed. And all the people will say, because can you think of something more cruel? You get a blind person. Yeah, there's no traffic. Just go ahead across the street. Really? Really? Are you going to treat somebody like that? I don't think so. Can't think of anything more horrible and to which people would say, amen. That is wrong. That is really wrong. Amen. That is wrong. And then, and then, and then this one. And this is why Jesus says this. And you can see how it relates back to what he said about destroying the law. Anyone who does not put the words of the law into practice is cursed. And all the people will say, Amen. You see, if Jesus destroys the law, he is cursed. If Jesus does away with the law, he is cursed. And so this is really important. And when Jesus says, Amen, I say to you, the people are going, yeah, because if you don't pay attention to the law, Jesus, you're cursed. This is really serious stuff that Jesus talked about. So that's from the law. What about the prophets? Listen to what it says in the prophets. 
And the God of Israel says, let a curse be on the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I declared, obey me and do everything that I command you, and you will be my people and I will be your God. In order to establish the oath, I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is today. I answered, follow the covenant or be cursed. Amen. So Jesus says, I'm not come to destroy the law. Amen. Because if I have, I'm cursed. Amen. So there you have it. You have the law and the prophets. Jesus will fulfill every dot and every iota of every law or he'll be cursed. Here's another interesting thing. We won't. We won't fulfill every dot and iota. We won't keep the covenant. We may not lead a literal blind person astray, but we'll lead people astray in our time. We will dishonor our father and mother. Just think back when you were a kid. Come on. We will be cursed. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? Everyone sitting in the pews this morning is a lawbreaker. Know that? You're a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. This is what we call the first use of the law, the reformers. The first use of the law is that we look at the law of God and we look at what it demands and we say, I cannot fulfill that. I am a sinner. I am cursed. Romans says this. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Can't do it. I cannot keep it. Because knowledge of sin comes through the law. That's the first, that's the first thing the law is about. Knowledge of sin. When I look at the law of God, I realize I am a sinner. John Calvin says it this way. The law is like a mirror. And I, and I wanted to put a picture of a mirror with somebody that has a lot of pimply face, but it's kind of gross, so I decided not to do that. <laughs> but the law is like a mirror. In it, we contemplate our weakness. Then the iniquity arising from this. And finally, the curse coming from both. Just as a mirror shows us the spots on our face... The apostle's statement is relevant here. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right? So we read the law and we go, ah, sinner, pimply face, don't look so good, rash breaking out all over. No, I'm lost. Galatians puts it this way. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. We all under curse if you rely on it. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be 
anyone, everyone, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Jesus is accursed if he does not keep every jot and tittle and pinpoint of the law. He has to keep it all. He has to fulfill it. But here's the good news for us, because we cannot fulfill it. We need somebody who does fulfill it. And so Galatians continues on. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, but by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, curse is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It is so important that Jesus keeps the law holy because then he alone is holy. And he alone can take our curse for us. It's another way of saying he takes our sin. But curse really has a different ring to it, doesn't it, sometimes? I'm cursed. I'm cursed. That's what Galatians says. That's what the Old Testament says. That's what Deuteronomy says. That's what the prophets say. Jesus' mission is to fulfill and to live into the law and to enact it, to bring out in word and deed the quality of life that the law was intended to produce. You look at Jesus and you say, oh, if I were able to follow the law completely, that's what my life would look like. My life would look like Jesus' life if I could actually keep the law. Yeah, it would. He came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. Do you remember what Jesus' last words were on the cross? Yeah, Matthew puts it this way. I forget, I have to raise this up. Matthew says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. But John tells us what he said, gives us the right words, tells us what he cried out, and this is what he cried out. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's finished. You know what was finished? A lot of things. But one of the things that was finished is the law. He had fulfilled the law. Every single minute piece he had fulfilled. He lived it out perfectly. Every iota, every dot. And he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And the people said, absolutely. That's a great amen. But he hasn't abolished the law. And this is where it begins to get tricky for us. He's fulfilled it, but he hasn't abolished it. So this is what he's saying. The law is still important for us. Somehow. We can't live by it. We can't fulfill it. We're going to fail. But it's still important for us. He's fulfilled it, but he hasn't abolished us. So now, Jesus takes a 180-degree turn. He's going to talk about you and me, okay? 
He just finished talking about himself and his relationship to the law. Now he's going to talk about us and our relationship to the law. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Relaxes. I used to preach when I was more able to... In fact, up until the last day I retired from church, um, I preached in a coat and tie, always. And as soon as I finished, I get home, you know the first thing I did? I relaxed the tie. (laughs) Just that thing. I didn't destroy my tie. Bonnie would have said, what are you doing destroying your ties? This is expensive. That's a silk tie. Yeah, you gave it to me for for Father's Day. I'm not going to destroy that tie. But I am going to relax it, right? Jesus said, if you relax the law, you'll be called least in the kingdom of God. You get to heaven, Bonnie and I get to heaven, so we die at the same time. But we get to heaven, and Brian goes, hey, Jesus. Hi, Bonnie. Jesus, I want you to meet least. He's my husband. I have a name, Mr. No, least, because you relax the law. Oh, not good. So let me talk about some of the ways we, we, we relax the law. Three different ways I can think of, maybe more, but here's three. One, we minimize the law. We even have a word for it. We minimize it by saying, uh, by saying a white lie. Right? There's actually a word for that in the English vocabulary. It's called a peccadillo, P-E-C, peck, which in Latin means sin. Right? A peccadillo. Peccadillo means it's not that big a deal. It's not a big lie. It's a little lie. When I was doing my taxes, starting out when Bunny were married, I had a guy doing my taxes. And I sat down with him one year and he said, okay, I, yeah, right here. Uh, we'll just change this. It'll save you a few bucks and the IRS will never look at it. I picked up my taxes and I was done with him. No more. I won't go to a guy like that. It's not about whether I get caught or not. I can't minimize the law like that. Are you going to minimize the law by telling, it's just a little white lie. Luther would say that if you just deceive, it's like lying. Yeah, I just didn't tell my wife what I did. She doesn't need to know. Really? Don't you think that might be relaxing the law a little bit? Here's the second way we relax the law. By saying, God will forgive me. Yeah, I know I shouldn't do this. I'm going to do it anyway, but God will forgive me. And we, then we remember what Paul says in Romans. Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And in the Greek, it's two words, meganoito. And I can't tell you what my Greek teacher said it really means but it means absolutely not. It's the strongest possible words. You cannot do that. We can't relax the law by saying, hey, we'll be forgiven. There's a third way that I find really interesting. I have to give this to you in the words of Calvin and Hobbes. So they're heading down there, and uh, Calvin, in the green hat, says... I'm getting nervous about Christmas. I didn't... I'm getting... And he says, 
you haven't been good? That's a question. It's all, it's relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify for good? You can always see him relaxing the law, can't you? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I mean, I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wards. Wouldn't you say that pretty good wasn't... Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should have lots of presents? And then the tiger Hobbes says, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. I was doing marital counseling with a, with a couple in their mid. Can you get this back on my ear? With a couple back uh, who have been married a number of years. Um, and they were just having some troubles. And I remember sitting down with them, and the husband kept saying, I haven't done anything bad. I always come home from work. I don't stop at the bar and drink. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't know what she's upset about. Women, can you understand? It's not just about not being bad. It's not just about not being bad. If your definition of following law and following God's commands and loving God is just not doing bad things, ah, you've relaxed the law pretty seriously. And Jesus says, if you do that, and if you teach that, then you're least in the kingdom of God. But what laws do we keep? Are you still with me? I don't want to get this, this from to be too long, but this is really important. So what about this one? We don't want to relax the law, but think about it. You shall not wear a garment of, uh, made of two kinds of material. How many of you are wearing a blended cotton shirt? <laughs> yeah. I like my blended cotton blend shirts, okay? All right, how about this one? I call this the red lobster rule, okay? Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has uh, fins and scales, you may eat. But whatever does not have fins and scales, you should not eat. It is unclean for you. That's the red lobster rule. If I follow that rule, I can't eat a red lobster. That's it. No scallops, no crab, you know, just... Forget red lobster. Okay, so we don't keep those, right? We don't keep those. But what about this one? You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against your own people, but you shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Uh, I'm sorry. But you, uh, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Yeah, right. We do that, right? We keep that, right? It's the golden rule, right? So we keep that. So real quickly, let's go through three more. How about these three? You should not kill or, or you should not steal. We keep that. You should not murder. We keep that. What about this? But the flesh of the bull uh, 
and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It's a sin offering. We don't keep that. Right? So what ones do we keep? We're not called to relax anything. What do we keep? What do we not keep? And, 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 and it's, I'm going to try to give you a picture here because it's so important. Okay? So here's the picture. The law is a shadow of Christ. If we wanted to do a Bible study on Christ, we could look at the law. Okay? It's only a shadow, but it points in two directions. One, it points backwards. It clarifies creation, and that's the moral law. Anything to do with creation is the moral law, and that we keep. It looks forward. Shadow, it's a shadow of redemption. It doesn't talk about Jesus on the cross, but the sacrificial system is all a shadow. Remember the Lamb of God? Well, the Lamb of God is straight out of the law because you sacrifice Passover straight out of the law. It's a shadow of what is to come. So with regards to the creation, how does that relate to Christ? Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created uh, through him and for him. So the moral law, the laws of creation, image God, and they must be kept because they image something important in Christ. These laws have not been abolished, and they will not be abolished. Jesus says, nothing's going to pass away until heaven, when heaven and earth come, are, are, are done away with. These laws will be done away with. Hebrews says, with laws that look forward, Hebrews says this, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, this is from the ESV, but uh, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of a true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every time, make perfect those who draw near. The laws of the temple image Christ. When you look at them in the Old Testament, they look forward to Christ. They have not been abolished. They have been fulfilled. The sun has set on those laws because of what Christ did and what he did on the cross. So they won't need to be kept. But they do need to be taught. They still need to be taught. They still need to be studied because they teach us about who? Christ. So we will still study them. Don't have to keep them, but we'll study them. Laws of creation, got to keep. How long? Until heaven and earth pass away. That's what Jesus said. And if we don't teach them, we're the least. And if we do teach them, Jesus says, we're the greatest. So I just want to show you a couple of examples and then we'll finish up. You should not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. That's looking forward. It's a shadow of redemption. In the Old Testament, it's a shadow. It, it reflects on God. The, one of the most famous verses in the law is the Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. One God. What reminds them of one God? We only wear one kind of material. We don't mix it. We don't mix idols with God. We don't mix anything with God. One God, one material. What we wear reminds us of that. You should not sow two different kinds of seed in the field. One kind of seed, one God, one thing we wear. But it's looking forward as a shadow of the reality. The reality is we wear Christ alone. So we, we look at Galatians 3.27, for instance. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Christ alone. It's not Christ plus anything else. One Christ, one fabric, one garment of salvation. That's it. Christ has fulfilled that. We can wear whatever we want because we clothe ourselves now spiritually. The law was looking forward to clothe ourselves with Christ. And how about this one? This is a really interesting one. All the waters you may eat, these, whatever has fins and scales you may eat, and whatever does not have fins and scales you shall, uh, you shall not eat is unclean for you. So we know this was uh, diminished. It was fulfilled uh, in Acts 10 with Cornelius. Cornelius is the centurion. He uh, is told to find Peter. He sends servants to find Peter. Peter is up on his rooftop, and a sheet comes down three different times with unclean things, and God says, take and eat. And Peter's like, uh, uh, I'm not going to take and eat. I've, I've, never, I've never done this. He says, kill and eat. Second time. Uh, no, I, I've observed the law. Perfect. Kill and eat. And Peter goes, okay, I don't know what this means, but okay. And then the centurion's servants come. They take him back to Cornelius, and, and he has to go into a Gentile's house. And you don't do that. You don't do that. And, and he says this. He's asked to go in, and Peter will go in, and he says to Cornelius and to his servants, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with uh, another nation, but God has shown me that you should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for you, I came without objection. I, I asked, um, I, I came in. So Peter learned that the sheep was saying, People are not unclean. These foods are not unclean. So what's really interesting there is the food set people apart. The dietary laws of the Jewish nation set them apart. The New Testament reality is that we are set apart by what we eat, is it not? You're going to eat something today. In fact, you're invited to the Lord's table. And you will eat bread. That's your meal. And that meal makes you clean. That meal represents Christ who died for you. In the temptations of Jesus, Satan said, uh, turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus said, no. Because the scripture says, you shall eat by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it's a picture of a, of a mother bird vomiting or, or giving that worm to her little, little birds, right? just comes from God's mouth straight into your mouth. That's what it's a picture of. So the dietary laws about what we eat are completely foreshadowed that we have a new meal, 
We are to feed on God and feed on Christ. Remember, there's a situation where Jesus says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. A lot of disciples left and said, eh, that's a pretty hard saying. I don't know. Can't deal with that. What makes us clean is Christ. We feed on the word. That's what we do. So, real quickly, and we're almost done here. So, you should not steal law of creation, murder law of creation, commit adultery law of creation. We keep those until heaven and earth pass away. The other laws foresee Christ, which he's fulfilled. So, the rest of our passage says, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Be called great. So the commandments are to be taught, and the one who teaches them will be great. So we looked at the first use of the law. That means we look at the law and we see we're sinners. Christ has taken our sin for us. Second use is civil. Not going to talk about that, but it's it's what we do. Don't murder, don't kill, don't steal. Don't drive drive 80 miles an hour to get to church because you're going to be late. Okay, That's civil use. The third use of law is what we're talking about. The third use is the law is a guide for Christian life. Once again, Calvin says, here's the best instrument for believers to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and to confirm them in the understanding of it. In other words, we look at the law to understand how we should live. Because See if there's an amen. Because when we look at Jesus, we see what the law does. He kept it perfectly. Oh, that's what a law keeper looks like. It looks like Jesus. Psalms 19 puts it this way. Law of the Lord is perfect, revives the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, and a honeycomb. Even if we don't observe laws that are fulfilled in Christ, we still need to study them because they point us to Christ. I'm going to close just with a, a story written by a pastor. And, and hopefully you can see how this relates to it all. Because so many people, I sat down to more people at funerals and weddings who talk about how good they are, not understanding it's not about being good. So the pastor writes this. I know a family who adopted an older child from, from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought her home, one of the things they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every day long. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it and saw it as the only way she could earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by the life in the orphanage. Thus, every morning... Her parents would come into her room. It was immaculate, and she would sit on her bed, and, she, and her mother would hear her say, My room is clean. Can I stay? 
Do you still love me? Her words broke her parents' heart. Eventually, the girl learned to hear her parents' words as their unconditionally beloved child would never be forsaken. She she won't be forsaken. Not as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. Can't earn your place in the family. After she knew that she was an inseparable part of the family story, even correction and discipline did not cause her to question her family's love for her. She understood correction and discipline need to be a part of what it meant to be a part of the family. So three quick takeaways. She goes from one thing to another, just joy. One, we teach the law because it informs us about the redemption in Christ, every iota and dot of it. Two, we study the law because it is a guide for Christian life. And three, we can never earn forgiveness. It was accomplished by Christ on the cross. A shadow in the Old Testament, to be sure. A reality in the New Testament. Will you receive it? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to realize that the law is good. It revives the soul. And Jesus himself is a picture of the law perfectly kept. Perfectly kept. And yet we can never keep it. So we're glad that you keep it. Because in you we have life. And we thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.